Thanks for listening to our podcast, recorded live at Gateway Church Ashford. You can find out more about us on our website, gatewaychurchashford.co.uk. Well, one of the uh, great things at the moment about being able to do all this technology stuff is that I've been engaging a lot more in YouTube than I ever have before. And some of that's been great. Um, I've enjoyed uh, kind of like finding out loads of uh, new videos of different people. Um, But the other side of it, actually, I've realized I've got into a bit of a bad habit over the last couple of weeks. With all of the amazing online content that different churches are putting out and all of the different ways that people are actually trying to connect with or churches trying to connect with people, I've realized that I've got into an unhealthy habit um, or that I was developing an unhealthy habit of starting to compare what we do as Gateway Church and what I am doing uh, when I'm speaking or as a leader with other people. I realized that actually I was comparing myself and looking at what we were doing as a church and what other people were doing and kind of going, well, they're doing that and why aren't we doing that? Or, oh, we're doing that and they're not doing that. And so actually I realized that I was getting into a really unhealthy mindset of comparing Uh, myself to other people. And Paul actually writes in Corinthians that he was very careful not to compare himself to others and his ministry to other people. Why is comparison so dangerous though? Well, I think comparison actually is at its root is, is misplaced identity. When we compare ourselves to other people, actually it's because our identity isn't in the right place. We've misplaced our identity and we've placed it somewhere else other than where it should be. All of us can end up comparing to other people, though. We, it is a, something that we can do as humans quite often. In fact, actually, one of the Ten Commandments is not to cover your neighbour's ox. Because God knows that actually we compare ourselves to others quite often. And comparison is one form, just one form, of misplaced identity. But there are other forms of misplaced identity as well. For example, maybe you've got into a habit, or maybe you have a habit or a lifestyle choice. And for you, that actually drives your identity. It drives who you are. So you might be really into fitness or running or an exercise or a sport, and that drives who you are as a person. It defines you. It shapes you. Maybe you've got another habit. Maybe it's not such a healthy one. Maybe it's alcohol or food, and that defines you and shapes who you are as a person. It shapes who, uh, how you define yourself and how you talk about yourself to other people and how you think about yourself. That's another form of misplaced identity. It's uh, habits and lifestyles. A third one, though, as well, is our past. We can allow our past to shape who we are. We can allow things that have happened to us in our childhood or growing up, the way that our parents spoke to us or didn't speak to us, the way that maybe we didn't have both parents at home or no parents at all. We can allow those things to shape our identity, and they do shape our identity. But if we live in those things as Christians, we're misplacing our identity somewhere where it shouldn't actually be anymore. Even as Christians, you see, we can end up putting our identity into something else other than uh, where we should be, which is in Jesus. And so what I thought we'd talk about today is this whole issue of identity and and how we uh, should be placing our identity in Jesus. And so what I thought we would do is look at Psalm 8 together. And Psalm 8 is a psalm of worship and praise to God. Most people think it was written by David, but it's not certain. So I'm just going to refer to uh, the person who wrote it as the psalmist. And I'm only going to read verses three to nine today because we just want to focus on those verses together. So let's just read that. And then I've got a few things I want to say about that and a few things I want to say about who we are because of what Jesus has done. So verses three to nine of Psalm 8. 
When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you've set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him? And the son of man that you care for him, yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honour. You've given him dominion over the works of your hands. You've put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea. Whatever passes along the paths of the seas, O Lord our God, how majestic is your name in all the earth. So the psalmist is reflecting on the majesty of God. The first thing the psalmist says in the verses that I've just read is that uh, he's looking at the the skies above him. He's looking at the stars above him and he's reflecting on the majesty of it. I just want to show you this photo by our very own Nick House on the stars. Just look at this image for a second. When we look up at the sky at night and we see the stars in space and we see the vast array of it, And the majesty of it, it makes us feel so small and insignificant when you see the thousands and millions of galaxies around us. This psalmist is looking up at the sky and he looks at the grandeur of the stars and he says, God, who am I that you would be mindful of me? Who am I that you would care for me? You know, God is mindful of us. What does that mean? That means that you and I are in God's thoughts. That even in all creation, and God is managing and governing in that as part of his role as creator and and the one who has authority over all of life, even in all of the things that God has to do, he considers us important enough that he thinks about us and that he cares about us as individuals. He is mindful of us. We are in his mind. Maybe for you this morning, maybe you don't know Jesus at all. That's the first thing I just want to say to you today. You are in God's mind. God cares about you. Talks about this in this psalm. You see, God cares about each one of us. We are in his mind. The second thing that the psalmist talks about here is between our verses five to eight. And the psalmist talks about the fact that actually God has given mankind, humans, authority over the other creatures that God has made. We have authority that God has given us. We have uh, the ability to be able to rule and govern over what God has made. And that sets us apart from the rest of the animal kingdom. We are above it, says this psalmist. Um, I, I Maybe like myself, you've been spending time out in your garden. You have been taking authority over land and over the earth in your back garden as you dig it up. You're taking dominion over it. You're in control of it. And that's something that God's given you. It's, it's a common grace to all mankind. God has given us authority over the world around us. In giving us that authority, he sets us apart from other creatures. And in setting us apart, God has done something else in us. God has placed his image in us. The Bible talks quite clearly about this in lots of different places, that God has placed his image into humanity. Now, that doesn't mean that we, are, we look like God the Father. God the Father is spirit. Yes, Jesus is the glorified man is in heaven. We don't look like God the Father physically, but yet actually we bear his characteristics. We bear his characteristics. We bear his characteristics in terms of, say, let's, for example, justice. We all want justice. We see people who are oppressed and we want justice for them. We see criminals and we want justice for them. We want justice for those who are uh, downtrodden. We care about it. Whether you're a Christian or not, you can care about justice. Secondly, maybe here's another one. Uh, morality. Now, look, uh, our society's changed a lot, and maybe we've moved away from uh, perhaps Christian values that we once held. But 
actually within society, you speak to most people and they would say that adultery is still wrong. It's still not good to have an affair with somebody. And lastly, here's just another example of how we bear God's image. Actually, look, we can care for one another. You don't have to be a Christian to love your neighbour. People down my road have been doing a fantastic job of loving people on our road, and they've actually been putting me to shame in terms of how much they're demonstrating love and care for, for people around them. You know, you don't have to be a Christian to be altruistic. That means doing good to other people. We see that around the world daily. We see different religions and no religions at all, people being caring for one another. And that's because God has placed his image into humanity. We all carry the image of God. Yet when sin came into the world, when Adam and Eve first rebelled against God and sin entered the world, the image of God in humanity was defaced and distorted. The image of God in you, if you're not a Christian, is a distorted image. What do I mean by that? Well, it, on one hand, you might know that you, you care about justice, but on another, on another hand, actually, you quite like getting one over on somebody else. On one hand, maybe you care about morality, you think having affairs is wrong, but actually pornography is totally okay. The image of God has been marred in each one of us. So we can love our neighbour as ourselves on one hand, but yet actually we can, we can look at what they've got outside their house and want what they have. The image of God in us has been destroyed and marred by sin in us. It's a distorted image. Before I became a, uh, a work for the church, I used to be an art teacher, I've said this before, and uh, so I still quite like art, obviously, because I was an art teacher for um, almost 15 years. And so uh, art is a big part of, uh, part of what I enjoy looking at. And so I just wanted to show you a piece of work by an artist called Sebastiano. I'm going to have to look at my notes here because I can't pronounce it otherwise. Sebastiano del Piombo, who was a uh, Renaissance artist from Italy in the 1600s. And in the 1700s, People took one of his paintings and they tried to transfer it from the surface that it was originally painted on and put it onto something else. And the result is this picture that you can see right now. It is defaced and distorted from the original. It just, it doesn't look right. Everything's been destroyed in it. There has been a, a kind of a just removal of what was there and it's hard to work out exactly what's going on. Like this painting, we carry a distorted image of God if you're not a Christian. It's an image that is in need of repair, renewal, and restoration. Let me just show you the restored image of his painting after restorationists put to work on it a few years ago. Here's the restored image. You can see that it's been restored to its former glory. When you come to Christ, when you come to him, what you find is that actually Jesus does a work of restoring the image of God in us. But actually, more than that, he doesn't just restore or repair the image. But actually what he does is he paints a brand new picture in our lives. So how does Jesus do that? How is Jesus able to uh, take what you are, take the brokenness in you, take the broken image of God that you carry and actually make you new and make you better than you would have been originally without it? How does, how does God do that? Well, what he does, what Jesus does is he pays for our sin. The Old Testament, when we read about Adam and Eve committing rebellion against God, it says in Genesis that actually the punishment for their sin was, was death. They were, they were forced to leave the Garden of Eden. Paul writes about this in Romans 5. He says that death ruled because of what Adam did. That Adam and Eve, the, the result of their sin was the punishment of death. Jesus came to pay for that punishment. 
In the Old Testament, there was a way for God's people, the Israelites, to be able to be made right with God, to have good relationships with him. And what they would do is they would take an animal up to the altar and it would be sacrificed. And the animal's death would be the substitute for the person's punishment that was owed against them for their sin. The animal's life for their life. The animal's death instead of their death. So they could go free. The animal took the punishment instead of them. It might sound quite horrific, but that is the system that God uh, ordained in order to be, for people to be able to uh, have relationship with him. That, that, that system was symbolic of something greater that was to be fulfilled through Jesus. Jesus comes, the perfect man, God in human form. He comes, he lives a perfect life, he fulfills the law of the Old Testament, he dies upon the cross, and his death is our death. And the life that he lives is the life that we now live. You see, Jesus came to take our punishment and he took it on himself. And in doing so, what Jesus did is amazing and so certain for us, each one of us as Christians, and we need to hear this again today. When Jesus died for us on the cross and he, took our, he gave us his death for our death so that we don't actually have to bear the punishment from God, which is eternal separation from God. When Jesus did that, he took us out of the captivity and the slavery of sin. You see, there's an image of, of sin in the Bible. It's almost like sin is a slave master or a hostage taker. And if you're not in Jesus, if you don't know him, if you're not a Christian, you live in bondage to sin. What do I mean by that? Actually, look, what it means is it means it's your default position. Actually, you can't help but do things that are rebellious against God. It's part of your nature because of, what, because of your sinful nature. And Jesus comes and he takes away your, uh, he takes you out of that captivity. He frees you from it. He frees you from the captivity of sin. And how does he do that? He pays your hostage price. He pays the ransom for your sin and for your shame. He takes you out of captivity. So Jesus' blood shed on the cross, his resurrection, means that you and I can walk free from sin. We are no longer to be held captive by sin anymore. But it's not just, you see, that Jesus frees you from sin. Jesus actually buys you for God. It talks about in Revelation 5. That Jesus is received as being the one who purchases men for God by his blood. He's purchased humans for God by his blood shed on the cross. Jesus takes us out of captivity and brings us into God's possession. We become God's. God takes possession of us, almost like a vacant house. God comes and he takes possession of us. There's a picture in the Old Testament in Deuteronomy, uh, God talking uh, to, to, to the people in Deuteronomy, 7, Deuteronomy uh, chapter 7. And God says that it wasn't because they were more numerous than the other people on the earth that God chose the Israelites, but it was because he chose to set his love upon them. God chose to set his love upon you, to make you his special possession, to actually call you into his family, to make you his this is an image we see in Ephesians. I'm going to talk about this again in a bit later on. But there's an in, a, a image in Ephesians 1 about inheritance. You become God's inheritance. He takes you as his possession. You belong to God. And in that, actually, you can walk in a new identity. Not an identity that is captive to sin and the slavery of sin and the slavery of an identity outside of God. But you can find a new identity 
An identity in God as, as God's. An identity as his image bearer walking the world. An identity as his child. What I wanted to do with the rest of our time together is actually talk about what it means to walk in the identity you find when you come out of sin and you come into being in Christ, as Paul writes in Ephesians. And so what we're going to do is we're going to look at an acrostic together that um, I've spoken about before, and, and it, it spells out the word Christ, and it demonstrates to us what it means to be in Christ. So first of all, the C for our acrostic for Christ is that you have been chosen in Christ. Ephesians 1 verse 4 says that you were chosen before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. God has chosen you. There are some people in our church who need to hear that today. God's chosen you. You belong to God. God God has paid for your life at the cost of his son. God has chosen you. So don't self-reject yourself or dismiss yourself as saying, I'm not worthy of God's love. God has chosen you from before the creation of the world, to be holy and blameless in his sight. The second part of our acrostic builds on that, the H. The H is for the handiwork of Christ. Ephesians 2 verse 10 says that we are God's workmanship. We are God's workmanship. God has made you. God has made you. God has made you with all of your past, all of the things you've experienced. God has placed you where he's placed you. He's made you his own, and he's made you for a purpose. Your life is not meaningless. It belongs to God. Your life is not worthless. It is the handiwork of Christ. And you know what is interesting about that verse, Ephesians 2 verse 10? It says that God has prepared us for good works. You are the handiwork of Christ, prepared for good works. The R in our acrostic stands for the fact that we have been redeemed in Christ. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It's a very true fact. We all have sinned. Each one of us, you, me, everyone, we've all rebelled and we've walked away from God at one point in our lives or another. But Christ, through his death, has justified us by a grace, as a gift, through the redemption that is in Christ. He He has redeemed us from sin. He has redeemed us. He's taken out of that captivity camp of sin and he's brought us into his kingdom. You have been redeemed. Your life has been ransomed. You no longer, that means, have to walk in slavery to sin anymore. You are free to follow Jesus. You have been redeemed by him. The I in our acrostic stands for inheritance. As I said earlier on, I said that actually when we read Ephesians 1.13, it's talking about the fact that God has inherited us as his children. We become God's. He takes possession of us. You're no longer a loner anymore, but yet you belong to God. He takes you as his possession. For some of us, that might sound quite horrible. Oh, God's taking us captive. No, no, no. What it means is he's adopting you into his family. He's taking possession of you. He wants to love and care for you and guide you and look after you and shepherd you and be a good father to you. He takes possession of us. We become God's inheritance. There's another part to this as well, and I think this is really important. Romans 8 talks about the fact that we are co-heirs with Christ. We're co-heirs with him. What does that mean? That means that everything that Christ inherits as the son of God, we inherit as God's children. That means you and I need to start changing our perspective about how we live life. 
We need to walk away from a life that is, is, is almost like in one camp and the other at the same time. Because for some of us as Christians, what we do is we walk with a sin in the camp of sin on one hand, because we've got freedom in Jesus, we, we think that it's kind of okay to carry on going, going on sinning. And so we put one foot in the camp that was the sin camp, the captivity to sin camp, and the other foot we kind of put into Jesus when we want to. Actually, we need to actually take a different stance in life. We need to put both feet into the camp of Jesus, into Jesus's foundation for our lives, and walk in the knowledge of that. And not be walking in sort of half slavery to sin anymore, but walk in the inheritance that we have as children of God. One day when Jesus returns, we're going to be married to him as his bride. We are being prepared for royalty. We need to walk in the goodness of that every day that we live and take authority over the things around us. Fifthly then, so the, 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 the fifth element of our acrostic is the fact that we are seated in Christ in heavenly places. And this really just builds on what I've just said. And you can see this in Ephesians 2.6. You've been seated in Christ in heavenly places. What does that mean? That means that the authority that Jesus has that we share. Seated with Christ. You know, I, I, I've spoken about this a lot because I've spent a lot of time on it recently. Um, but I've just, I've just finished a, an exegesis, a commentary on Ephesians, uh, sorry, not on Ephesians, on Luke 8. Um, and I looked at uh, the, the healing of Jairus, Jairus' daughter and the woman uh, caught in bleeding. And what's really interesting about that story is it forms part of a wider narrative. And Jesus is demonstrating authority. The first way that Jesus demonstrates authority is he goes out into a lake with his disciples and he stills the storm. He demonstrates he's got authority over creation. The second way that he demonstrates his authority, uh, sorry, authority is he goes to the, the country of the Gerasians and he, he heals a man with many demons. He casts the demons out into a herd of pigs. Those you remember that story. And then lastly, he demonstrates his authority over sickness and death. First by healing of the woman caught with bleeding. And, and lastly, uh, the girl he raises to life, Jairus' daughter. Jesus demonstrates in these four stories that he has authority over creation, authority over the demonic, authority over sickness, and authority over death. And then what's really interesting is if you read Luke 9, Luke 9 talks about the fact that Jesus said to his disciples, I give you authority. As Jesus' disciples, we have authority. We have authority over the demonic. We have authority over the, the, the sin's captivity in us. And we can walk a life of freedom knowing that we are seated in Christ, we can take authority over sickness. We can take authority over these things because Christ has given us that authority and we can walk in it in greater ways than we have before. Last of all, you and I are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Paul writes to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians, in Christ your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God. You and I are a temple for the Holy Spirit. God dwells in us. And at that, that amazing time when you get to walk out your front door and go back to life as normal, you carry the Holy Spirit with you wherever you go. And, and when you're at home right now, you carry the Holy Spirit with you. You are a temple for the Holy Spirit. And actually, Paul writes, therefore, honour God with your body. You know, actually, as we are temples of the Holy Spirit, we need to think about how we wisely steward what God's given us as his temples, as his people. We, we have this identity in Jesus 
that we've been chosen by him, that we've been, we are made his handiwork, that we're redeemed by him, that we have an inheritance in him, that we're seated in him, and that we are a temple of the Holy Spirit because of him. That is our identity in Jesus. My encouragement to you today is to walk in that identity. Walk in that identity. Walking in that identity means walking with authority. I talked about these two camps quite a lot today, the camp of sin and the camp of Christ, the the death in Adam and the life in Christ that you can live. You know, it's not just when you become a Christian, you're freed from sin. I think some of us just have the picture that, "Well, well, Christ has taken me away from sin, I'm freed from it. No, it's actually better than that. We have sin, Jesus takes us out of sin and actually gives us authority over it. We have authority over sin. What does that mean? That means that you and I can walk in a way that means we can walk away from sin. We can take authority over it in our lives. When I was uh, just in my late teens, early 20s, I got myself involved in lots of silly stuff that you do as a, a late teen. Lots of drinking, smoking, doing lots of things that I shouldn't do. And all the time I would continue going back to God and apologising, but not really realising that all I was doing is just kind of apologising, but not really saying sorry, not really repenting. Because to repent means to turn away. And what I realised was, is that actually Christ had given me authority to walk away from those habits and behaviours that I'd started to get myself involved in. You have authority in Jesus to walk away from certain behaviours in your life. You have authority to speak to yourself and say, no, I'm actually going to commit myself to Jesus. Paul writes in, uh, in Romans 12, verse 1, that we should be transformed by the renewing of our minds. And that's something that he tells us to do. We need to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. You know, maybe for you, maybe you've got into a really unhelpful uh, pattern of thinking. Maybe you're very negative about yourself. Maybe you live with the regrets of your youth, the things that you dreamt of doing one day, but you never actually uh, amounted to. Maybe you've got into comparison like uh, I'd started getting into. Maybe you compare yourself to others and you just feel like you come up short all the time. Jesus tells you to take authority over it and say, no, do you know what? I'm going to remind myself of who I am in Jesus. I'm his handiwork. I'm chosen by him. Maybe you've got yourself caught into a bad habit at the moment. Maybe your habit is pornography. Maybe your habit is alcohol. Maybe your habit is something else. I don't know. But look, if you've caught yourself into a habit that you know is sinful, actually, you can walk away from it. You have been redeemed, bought by the precious blood of Jesus, and you can take authority over that sin. For you, that means actually walking away from it and taking practical steps not to return to it. You know, if you've got yourself caught in a habit like that, you need to walk away from it and put practical steps in place to make sure you don't return back to it. Habits can be broken in the name of Jesus as you walk away from them, recognising who you are in him. You need to keep reminding yourself of who you are in Jesus. So many pastoral situations that that I've seen in in our church and elsewhere, that, that their situations aren't actually the issue. The issue is underneath the issue. The issue is a wrong and misplaced identity. Actually, as we recenter our identity on Jesus, as we remind ourselves of who we are in him, actually the issue starts to go away because we recognize who we are in God. This is my challenge for you today. My challenge and encouragement to you today is to take your feet out of the old camp and make sure you walk in the freedom of Jesus. 
You are, a, you are alive because of what he has done. You have freedom because of what he has done. And you have authority because of what he has done. You know, it is amazing what Jesus has done for each one of us. Maybe you don't know him. Maybe, as I've spoken about, actually, I've given you the gospel today, if you're not a Christian. You can walk away from sin right now, and you can turn to Jesus, and you can ask him to come and fill you with his presence and turn away from sin. And as you do that, a supernatural thing takes place. He takes you out of the camp of sin, and he brings you into his kingdom. Maybe you want to do that for the first time this morning as I pray in a minute. Or maybe you're in that, that other kind of category. You're a Christian, but you know you're walking kind of in both places. And my encouragement to you today is to turn away and follow Jesus. Be encouraged. Be encouraged to pursue a life that is in Christ. It is an identity that just gets better and better every day. Let's pray as we finish and I hand back over to Rachel and Sarah. Lord Jesus, I thank you that because of the work on the cross, Jesus, that you have restored, repaired and made new the image of God in us. And that, Lord God, we are no longer uh, dead to sin, but we have been made alive in Christ. Lord Jesus, I thank you that because of what you've done, we have uh, released from the bondage and the slavery of sin, and we now have authority to walk away from it. Lord Jesus, I pray for each of us, Lord, today. Maybe we are living lives in shame and disappointment. Maybe actually we're living lives in despair. Jesus, I pray that you would just walk alongside us now. Holy Spirit, comfort us, I pray, but also just draw us back to Jesus. Draw us back to who we are in him. Our foundation is clearly in him. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would help us to walk in you. Lord, to, to clothe ourselves in you and walk free of any habits or lifestyles, Lord God, that don't honour you and that are not, are not for your purpose for us. And Lord, I pray for anyone there today who doesn't know you yet. Lord, and as I've spoken this message today, they've realised, Lord, that, you, that they could have an amazing life in you. Jesus, I pray for them that they might now turn to you, Jesus. I ask you that you give them the confidence to ask for prayer on the chat now and, and, and actually receive you as their saviour. Lord, we thank you, God, for what you're doing in us. We thank you that you're our saviour. We thank you that we're in you. And we pray this week, Lord, we'd walk free and walk a lifestyle that is in Christ. Amen.